please turn with me in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 11. We return this morning to pick up at verse 19. And beginning here at verse 19, God's word turns our attention back to those believers who faced the persecution that arose after Stephen's stoning, and these were forced to flee from Jerusalem. Well, we pick up this morning and we find out that these believers, some of them, went as far as Antioch, some 300 miles north of Jerusalem, and we now consider what happened to these believers as they were scattered. Last night in family worship, we read this text to prepare for worship today, and I read just the first part of verse 1, and I paused there, and I said, what do you think? How do you think these believers were feeling at this point? These were those believers who were forced to flee Jerusalem, and not only that, they were forced to flee into Antioch, which as we'll consider here in a moment, was a very sinful city. Well, one of my kids spoke up and said, well, I think I would struggle. Like These believers probably struggled... No- to know how to make sense of God's providence in their lives. And really, that is where this text begins. And as we walk through this text this morning, we're going to see how God, in his his providence, revealed himself to be in control and using all things. There is really so much for us to learn here. And I've entitled the sermon this morning, Can You See Him? Because really what this text sets before us is the hidden hand of Christ's providence as he rules and reigns over all things. Well, let's give our careful attention now to the word of God. Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19. I'll read through the end of the chapter, and we're actually going to return to this text, Lord willing, next week. So this morning we'll focus on verses 19 through 24. This is the word of God. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Amen. This is the word of God. 
Well, there are times in the Christian life where it is hard to discern and to understand exactly what God is doing. Scripture teaches us that God is sovereign over all things. Ephesians 1 teaches us that Jesus rules over all things for the sake of his church. And yet there are times where we look around us and we struggle with what we see going on in the world. We struggle to reconcile this truth so clearly taught in Scripture with how we see things playing out in the world around us. From our very limited perspective, it seems sometimes as though things are out of control. It seems as though things are chaotic and unplanned instead of orderly and purposeful. Just look at our text here today. It begins by turning our attention back to these believers who were scattered because of a persecution that arose after Stephen's stoning. If we go back to Acts chapter 8, it tells us that when Stephen was stoned, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and the believers were all scattered except the apostles. Well, here we now return and turn our attention back to those believers who were scattered as far as Antioch. And when we turn our attention to them, we are met with these believers who are put into a difficult place. When we first read about these believers, persecution had driven them out of their homes. And now as we consider them again, we learn that they were not just driven out of their homes and into some sort of pleasant place. Instead, they were driven out of their homes in Jerusalem and into a very difficult place set of circumstances. They were driven to and planted within a very sinful city. Here our text focuses upon Antioch. What would it have been like for these believers to leave Jerusalem and to have to settle down in Antioch? Well, during the first century, Antioch was the third largest city in the world, just behind Rome and Alexandria. It was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, and it was a melting pot for at least five different cultures. Jews made up about one-seventh of the city's population. But here's the thing. Antioch was famous for its deliberate and passionate pursuit of pleasure. And so many today have nicknamed Antioch the Las Vegas of the ancient world. So these believers were driven out of Jerusalem, and they were not able to go and settle down in some city where they experienced peace. Instead, they settled down in a city that presented them with many different difficulties. Amazingly, as you just heard me read here in our text, it was in this city with all of its sensuality and immorality that, as our text tells us, the disciples were first called Christians. And really, we're going to learn more about this later on because we learn later on that Antioch became the birthplace of foreign missions. So let's back up again and get back to the beginning point of our text. Because at the beginning, picking up here, we could imagine these believers wondering at what the Lord was doing. After all, many of these have come to saving faith through the apostles preaching back in Jerusalem. And we could put ourselves in their place and imagine their great joy when they heard Jesus preached. When they heard that their sins had been forgiven by Christ. 
that they had been clothed in his righteousness and that their eternity was secure. What amazing joy. Then we could imagine their joy being challenged by that persecution that quickly arose. And we could imagine these believers struggling with the providence of God in their lives and asking a question like, what are you doing, Lord? Why is all of this going on? We know that you have ascended on high. You have been seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. You are ruling and reigning over all things. So why are we being persecuted? Why are we being forced to flee? And why have you driven us into this sinful city to plant us there? What are you doing, Lord? Well, This is often how Christians feel along the pilgrim journey. And I believe that if you compare these kinds of circumstances with our own in this world, it's not hard to see similarities. We are facing circumstances that may cause us to lift our eyes and say, what are you doing, Lord? Why are things progressing in this way? If you are ruling and reigning over all things, why aren't things going differently? Well, as we study this text before us, we learn that especially when things seem to be out of control or when we cannot make sense of the circumstances around us, we need to look for Christ. We need to see by faith the hidden hand of King Jesus orchestrating all things. And that is exactly what we see here in this text. So can you see him? Can you see Jesus ruling and reigning over these circumstances here in Acts chapter 11? And can you see him ruling and reigning in your life, in this world today, over all things for the sake of the church? Can you see the hidden hand of King Jesus orchestrating all things for his own glory and for our good? We are going to take two weeks to consider this text. This morning we'll begin by examining three ways that we see King Jesus. So let's begin with the first. First of all, we see that he is filling the hearts of his people. Even in the midst of difficult circumstances, Jesus is filling the hearts of his people. Jesus said in his earthly ministry, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever comes out of our mouths is the overflow from our hearts. This is a universal truth. Whatever someone loves, they speak of. Whatever has captured someone's attention, you will find in their conversation. We'll consider this text before us. Even as these believers have been forced to flee their homes, and even as they have come into this sinful city that presented them with many different difficulties, they are found here Speaking of Jesus. They are found here speaking of Christ. Think of what this means. So much has transpired between their conversions and what we read of here in our text. On one level, it would be no real surprise to find believers speaking of Jesus immediately upon their conversion. We, we see that in Scripture. We know it in our own experience. It is not unusual for someone to come to Christ and to speak so freely of what they have found in Jesus Christ. But 
These believers have known Christ now for some time. And what is more, they have suffered for their faithfulness to Christ, which means we have found them here in this text, speaking of Jesus even in the face of their fears. Why were they forced to flee from Jerusalem? Well, it was because of their faith in Christ. It was because they were speaking of Jesus back in Jerusalem. And so the natural temptation would be, as they come into Antioch, the natural temptation would be to keep quiet. It would be normal for them to fear a further persecution because of their faith. And so from a human perspective, it would be somewhat understandable for these brothers and sisters to be tempted to be silent. But they are not silent They are speaking of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is filling their hearts. They are speaking of Jesus because he is the object of their affection. They are speaking of Jesus because he has filled their hearts and souls with love for Christ. You can see here that Jesus is overcoming their fear of man by that perfect love that casts out fear. Can you see Jesus here at this point in our text. We see Jesus in another way also. Luke tells us that these believers went about divided into two groups. They went about speaking of Jesus in different ways, and we see Christ orchestrating it all. The first group went about speaking of Jesus only to their fellow Jews. This may have been due to that fear. It could have been because of that fear, or it could have been due to that prejudice that we considered back in chapter 10. Some of the Jews were only comfortable speaking to the other Jews. Either way, they spoke of Jesus only among their fellow brothers. But then we see that there's this other group. And this other group has been prepared by differing circumstances in their life, and they speak of Jesus to both Jews and Greeks. They are willing to speak to Jesus, not just to their brothers, but to all others. And so through both of these groups, we see Jesus orchestrating these events to bring the good news of his grace to those both near and far. We see that despite the differing circumstances in these believers' lives, Jesus is orchestrating it all to bring the gospel into Antioch. Here we witness the sovereign guiding hand of King Jesus. Here we see Jesus gifting each one and using each one according to how he desired so that we see the gospel coming to those both near and far. Can you see Jesus? Can you see Jesus orchestrating all of these things to bring the gospel into Antioch? And to reach everyone. In summary, we see that these spoke of the one whom they loved. Just think about the power of the love of Christ within their hearts. These believers back in Jerusalem had dreams and plans for their own lives in this world. And think about how all of that changed when they came to know Christ. Really, their lives were flipped upside down. Their dreams were gone in a moment. And here, as we catch up with them later on, we see that their conversation is not concerning the things of this world. Their conversation is not about all that they left behind in Jerusalem. 
Their conversation is not about the costs associated with starting all over. Their conversation is not contained to the things of this world. Instead, they are speaking of Jesus. Why? Because he fills their hearts. They are speaking of the one whom they love. You see, at an earlier point in the lives of all of these people, the world had captured their hearts. The world had filled their hearts with all of its various false promises. And yet now as we catch up with these people, we see that the expulsive power of a new affection has driven the world out of their hearts. The expulsive power of love for Christ has driven the world out of their hearts. This is why they are not found speaking of the things of this world. Instead, they are found speaking of the one whom they love. They love Jesus. They can see the big picture and they love their Savior. They're cognizant of the fact that they were once dead in their trespasses and sins, that they were once children of wrath, that they were once destined for an unimaginable and unbearable eternity in hell. But Christ has come, and he gave up his life. He died in their place. He laid down his life to be their Savior. And so nothing else matters to these believers. Because they love their Savior. It reminds me of Peter and John back in Acts chapter 4. They're arrested and they're commanded, don't you speak in that name anymore. And they say, listen, we can't help it. Do what you will. We can't help it. Because Christ is in our hearts, we will speak of him. Here are these believers later on doing the very same thing. Christ has filled their hearts. And that is how we see Christ in this text at this point. But we ought to pause to consider this. This same love and joy that we see in these believers, it is available to every believer at any moment. This same love, this same heart full of the love of Christ, it is available to any and every one of you who has been united to Jesus Christ by faith. Because what we see here comes from communion with Christ. These saints are not here found waiting for better days. Instead, they are found enjoying what belongs to them presently in Christ. You see, and we're going to hear more about this tonight, but they have set their minds upon Christ. They have cast all of their cares upon him, and these are here meditating upon everlasting love, upon the forgiveness of sins, upon robes of righteousness and the hope of heaven. These are here found speaking of Christ to a world lost in sin, even in the face of their, even in the face of their fears, because Christ fills their hearts. If you want to speak of Christ, if you want to be found speaking of Christ, then you need to commune with Christ. You need to set your mind upon Christ. He needs to be your meditation. And when you commune with Christ, he will fill your heart and you will find yourself speaking of him. So can you see him here in the text? Do you see Jesus filling the hearts of his people to overflowing? 
Well, he's not only filling their hearts, but second, we see that he is directing their lives. He is directing their lives. Because these believers are speaking of Christ, two times the text tells us that many came to faith in Christ. And word of this of these conversions gets back to Jerusalem. And so hearing these things, the church in Jerusalem sends Barnabas to go and investigate what's going on there in Antioch. Do you remember how Barnabas was so instrumental back in chapter 9? Saul had been powerfully converted. He came to the church in Jerusalem and they said, no. You are the one that persecuted the church. They had, they had no real reason to receive Saul into their church at that point, and that's where Paul, uh, Barnabas comes in. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, goes and he speaks to Paul, to Saul. And he goes and he speaks to the church, and he brings them all together so that Saul is finally welcomed into the church. Well, here we see the church in Jerusalem getting Barnabas and asking him to use those gifts once again. They send the son of encouragement into Antioch to investigate what's going on there. So what happens? Well, first of all, we see that Barnabas encourages the saints in Antioch with what he sees. The text tells us that he goes to Antioch and he sees the grace of God. And those are not throwaway words. We, we need to pause and we need to consider the significance of those words because here the word of God teaches us what we are to look for. Here the word of God teaches us how we are to see when we come to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Think about this. Barnabas goes into this city that is well known for its sin. And he is going to people who have just come to know faith or come to know Christ by faith. These people were not long ago living according to the ways of this world. And Barnabas comes and what does he see? Does he see all of the sin still clinging so closely to these people in Antioch? Does he come and he see all of the many areas in which these people still need to grow? Does he come and he sees all of the shortcomings, the sins and the faults still among these people? Does he see these things? No. He sees the grace of God. He sees Christ at work in them. He sees that despite obvious shortcomings, sins and faults, that Jesus loves these people. And so Barnabas loves these people. And so he encourages them with what he sees. He sees the grace of God. And just pause for a moment. Can you see Christ? Can you see Christ in the way that Barnabas is looking upon God's people? He is looking in the way that Christ has looked upon them. Now, second, we see that Barnabas encourages the saints in Antioch not only with what he sees, but also how he responds. Seeing the grace of God, he was glad. A couple of weeks ago, we considered what happened with the circumcision party when they heard about how Peter went to the Gentiles. How did they respond? They did not respond by seeing the grace of God, and they were not glad. They criticized. And this is an intentional contrast. 
And we see the work of Christ through Barnabas because he sees the grace of God and he rejoices with these newfound brothers and sisters in the Lord. He rejoices because he knows that their sins have been forgiven and they are now a part of Christ's eternal family. Barnabas sees the grace of God and he encourages these young believers by reveling in the grace of God with them. But then third... We see that Barnabas encourages these saints by way of his exhortation. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. These are really important words as well. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, because of the way that Barnabas has come and encouraged these saints, he has their ear. Because he has come and he has loved them well, he has loved them like Christ, they are willing to hear his exhortation. So listen to his exhortation. Let's consider these words just briefly this morning. The text says, He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, there is an entire sermon in these words. We don't have time to unpack them completely. But notice here that Barnabas prepares these new believers to expect trial and temptation to come in the Christian life. He he primes them to expect trials and temptations to come that are designed to turn them away from Christ or to become opportunities for them to be found unfaithful. After all, you don't need to be exhorted to remain faithful unless there are going to be points at which you might be tempted to be unfaithful. And so with much wisdom, Barnabas takes advantage of this beautiful, glorious moment to prepare these believers for the pilgrim journey ahead. So how does he equip them? He says you will be tempted toward unfaithfulness in the pilgrim journey. And then he equips them in two ways. First of all, he equips these believers with their purpose in Christ. He exhorts them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. You see, your purpose in Christ is essential, it is vital to the pilgrim journey. It is the way that Christ guards and keeps us along the journey. Anytime we lose focus upon the purpose that Jesus has assigned to our lives, we become more vulnerable to the attacks of our enemy. So what is your purpose in Christ? Boys and girls, do you have a ready answer for that question? Do you know already what your purpose in Christ is? And do you live in light of it? Do you live each day in light of your purpose in Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, speaking of Jesus, He died that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. For every believer, that is your purpose in Christ. That you would live no longer for yourself, but for your Savior. For the one who came and offered himself up for you. 
And this idea, this purpose is absolutely invaluable. Its place in your life cannot be overstated. As those who belong to Jesus Christ, he assigns the purpose to your life. And he uses that purpose to guard and to keep you in the Christian life. When you are living according to your God-given purpose, it keeps everything else in its proper place. And your enemy knows that you become vulnerable to his attacks when you fail or you forget your purpose in Christ. And so the very first thing that Barnabas equips these new believers with is their purpose in Christ. He says, don't forget who you are. And don't forget what Christ's will is for your pilgrim journey. It is not about you. It is about him. It is about Jesus Christ. And so you and I need this exhortation. You and I are to live each day saying, it is not about me. We are taught to pray in the Lord prayer, Lord's Prayer, thy will be done. We prayed it this morning. We are to live that kind of life. It is that purpose that God equips us with, assigns us with to guard and to keep us in this life. But there's a second thing that Barnabas here equips these new believers with. And that is the corporate nature of the Christian life. Here Barnabas is careful to highlight how The Christian life is something we do together. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He's saying, you all have a purpose in Christ and you all are to remain faithful together. It's not you individual Christian, you have your own purpose in Christ and you can pursue that in some way apart from your brothers and sisters. No, this is the life we live Together, Here, Barnabas is teaching these newfound believers about the essential place of life within the church. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. You cannot be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose without each other, without the body of Christ. I need you, you need me, we need each other. This is something we can only do together. And so seeing these things, we need to see and recognize that this is Christ in our text directing the lives of his people. This is the Lord Jesus Christ working through his servant Barnabas to set these new believers upon their pathway toward heaven. And he is giving two incredibly important priorities, your purpose in Christ and the corporate nature of the Christian life. So we need to see that this is Christ directing his people. Look at verse 24. It tells us that Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit. He is full of the Spirit of Christ, and so he is speaking for Christ. He is speaking of Christ and he is handing over what he has learned from Christ to these new believers. Really, Barnabas is a great picture here of what it looks like when we are walking according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. He is reflecting Jesus in what he says and in what he does. He sees the grace of God and he rejoices and he is now preparing God's people for the journey ahead. 
Well, at this point, we can pause and we can go back to some of those earlier questions. What are you doing, Lord? Why have you driven us from our homes? What, why did you plant us here in Antioch? What are we doing? Well, now at this point of the text, the answers to those questions start to become clear. We can see that Jesus has been with his people the entire time. He is filling their hearts and he is directing their lives. He is bringing in his kingdom. And so that brings us to consider finally how he is building his church. Jesus is building his church. Now we need to see here how Jesus is building his church. Again, if we go back to Acts chapter 8, we see that great persecution break out against the church. And at that point, it would be very easy to wonder How in the world is God going to orchestrate all of this for his own glory and for the good of his people? Is he really ruling and reigning over all things? Can Christ orchestrate a persecution for good? Well, again, at this point in our text, we can see that what Satan intended for evil, God has worked for good. Back in Acts chapter 8, that great persecution was designed by Satan to stamp out the church. But instead of that, God has orchestrated it for good. And instead of stamping out the fires of the gospel, he has just kicked the ashes far and wide so that it starts to burn all over. His church is being planted in Antioch. What Satan intended for evil, God is using for great good. We see that Jesus has been ruling and reigning over all of this the entire time despite the way that things seem. Look at verse 21. Here's one of the outcomes. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Similarly, verse 24, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Earlier we're asking, what are you doing, Lord? Now we can see he is building his church. He is building his church from a human perspective. It seemed like things were chaotic and out of control. But now, over time and with the perspective of God's word, it becomes clear Jesus was indeed ruling over all of those things. He has orchestrated all of it for the sake of his church. So how did Jesus build his church? Just three observations here. First of all, we see... That Jesus is himself the blessing in his church. He is the one who is orchestrating all of these things. He is the one who has, has brought many to saving faith. Look again at verse 24. And the hand of the Lord was with them all. What happened there in Antioch was by Christ's design and because of his blessing. It was not because of any sort of clever ideas from God's people or powerful programs that they sent into Antioch. No, it was because of a persecution that Christ was ordaining to bring his people into Antioch so that the church might flourish there. This was because of Christ's blessing. The hand of the Lord was with them. But second, we also need to see that the Lord worked through his people. He worked through those believers who went into Antioch and only spoke to the Jews. 
He worked through those believers who went into Antioch and spoke to the Jews and the Greeks. He went, worked through Barnabas who came to encourage the church as well. God is using his people to bring the good news of the gospel into this sinful city because he planned to plant a church there. He planned to call sinners out of darkness and into light. Can you see Jesus? Can you see how this was his plan the entire time? Well, third, we need to see now the nature of the Christian life and ministry in this world. And I believe this, this text is invaluable to us in the church, this, this final lesson here. You see, here we witness something that is truly amazing. We see God sending his people into this sinful city and saving many. They're just, they're just there speaking of Jesus, and Jesus powerfully saves sinners in Antioch. Jesus plants his church there in Antioch, and it's clear none of the citizens of Antioch were seeking after God. They weren't planning this. This wasn't an invitation for believers to come into Antioch. No, this is something that Jesus has orchestrated. In God's good providence, he ordered the lives of his people to bring the gospel to bear upon this sinful city. And so, the sovereign electing grace of Jesus Christ is exalted and magnified. But now look back and think about how Jesus, King Jesus, decided to do it. He could have done this in any way that he would so choose. He could have sent a powerful ministry campaign to sweep through the ancient world. He could have chosen some powerful program that would sweep through all of Judea. And show this world that he is ruling and reigning over all things. He could have done it in a way that was glorious in the sight of this world. Is that how he chose to do it? No. So how did he choose to do it? Well, he chose to do it in a way that reflects the cross. He did it in a way that confounds and confuses this world. You see, what Jesus does here in this text reflects the way in which he saves the world. Seeing this in the word of God should help us to live our lives in the present day. See, Martin Luther identified two categories to talk about what he was seeing in the church in his day. And he said that the church in his day was tempted to live according to a theology of glory instead of a theology of the cross. A few years ago, Carl Truman picked up on that idea and was writing about how he believes that's the blind spot of the church in the world today. That's our blind spot even to this day. We are tempted to live according to a theology of glory instead of a theology of the cross. What is a theology of glory? Well, a theology of glory is to expect God to work in this way, in this world, in a way that is glorious. Instead of to work in, the, in this world in a way that reflects the cross. Are we guilty of living in the same way that God's people were living before Christ came? How did the Jews expect Jesus to come. 
Were they looking for a cross? Were they, were they looking for a conquering king? Were they looking for one to come in a way that is, from a human perspective, glorious and powerful? That's what they were looking for, but how did Jesus come? He came in poverty. He came and he was rejected by his own people. Isaiah tells us he had no beauty to draw us to him. And then he was rejected by this world and he died upon the cross. And it was through the cross that he reconciles to himself all of his people. So we should expect Christ to rule and reign over all things in this world in a way that reflects the cross. That is actually what we see here in our text. Why, Lord? What are you doing? Aren't you ruling and reigning over all things? Why allow these things to happen? Why persecution? Because it reflects the cross. Boys and girls, I hope you guys will understand this. Because you live in a time right now where it seems, from a human perspective, like things are moving in the wrong direction, we might say. I believe it's going to be harder for your generation than it was for my own or is for my own. And so when you see that, what are you supposed to see? Are you supposed to doubt that Christ is ruling or reigning? No, this text teaches you to, to look upon this and to look behind what you see, to see Christ's hidden hand of providence, King Jesus orchestrating it all for the advancement of his kingdom and for your own good. And so when you see circumstances that make you, that tempt you to think that things are out of control or not the way that things should be, just like a persecution, you should immediately say, I wonder how Christ is going to use that. This is another way that Jesus is going to glorify himself in a way that mirrors the cross. And this should help all of us to understand our lives in this world. All of you can think of things, even now that you look at, in this world and you say, I, that's, not, that's not the way I think it should go. And you may be tempted to think it should be more glorious than what it is doing. And so all of us need to be able to look upon those things as we see them here in, this, in God's word and say, what is Christ going to do with that? How is he going to advance his kingdom in a way that reflects the cross? Can you see him? Can you see the way that Jesus works in this world? Because if you're, if you're going to look upon life in this world with only your natural eyes and according to human reason, you're going to be discouraged. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to fear. But if you will look through the lens of God's word upon this world, you're going to see Christ reigning over it all. 
And your heart can be encouraged by saying, I wonder how he is going to use that to bring many to saving faith. This text should give us great confidence in King Jesus. So can you see him, not just here in this text, but can you see him in your life? Can you see him in this world, ruling and reigning over all things for your good and for his glory? Let us pray together. Lord God in heaven, Lord Jesus, we love that we worship right now with the truth of your word teaching us to see behind everything else to you, our King, who is ruling and reigning over all things. Lord, thank you for your word which teaches us how to look upon this world and how to see you by faith. Lord, we come now with your word, having heard your word, and we ask for these things. We ask that you would fill our hearts with yourself. That you would help us to meditate and to commune with you by your word because we have been given so very much. Enough to fill our hearts with joy in all kinds of circumstances. Will you give us that kind of communion as we encourage one another and as we gather around your word? Lord, will you fill our hearts to overflowing? Lord, we pray that you would continue to direct our lives in this world. We pray that you would help us to be faithful to you together with steadfast purpose. May we be a people who live according to your word, not living for ourselves, but for you, Lord Jesus, who died and was raised. And Lord Jesus, will you continue as you have promised to build your church? Will you give us confidence in your promise and eyes of faith to see how you will do it in a way that reflects the cross? And seeing this in your word, will you plant it in our hearts so that we can live with confidence in this world? Lord, train us to see those things that normally would be occasions for discouragement or fear. May we be trained instead by your word to look upon those things, to see behind them and to wonder at how you will orchestrate it all for your glory and for our good. Lord, place this word in our hearts and cause us to glorify your name. Do this, Lord God, for your name's sake. Cause us to be as your people, those who live no longer for ourselves, but for you, who died and was raised. Do this, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn together.